The Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast is sponsored by Steeped Coffee. Steeped Coffee is a new brewing method that combines specialty craft coffee into a single serving bag. You don't need a machine. You don't have to make a mess. All you have to do is add hot water wherever you go. Each steep pack is individually sealed. It's nitrogen flush, so it stays fresh. And it's got this special full immersion filter. And the filter is ultrasonic sealed, which means it's sealed together with no glue or no staples. So there's no weird stuff floating around your coffee. Steeped is a benefit B Corp. They ethically source all their coffee. Their packaging is fully compostable and they believe that business should be done without compromise. You can get your hands on Steeped coffee packs at steepedcoffee.com. That's S-T-E-E-P-E-D coffee.com. Asking your local retail stores to start carrying Steeped or having your favorite roastery reach out and kind of get in touch. If you're in Santa Cruz, come on by any of the Cat and Cloud locations. We have it there for you. Basically, they're just doing their best to change the coffee industry, make your life more convenient with their pre-portioned, pre-ground innovation. So tell all your friends. What is cracking, everybody? Welcome to the Cat and Cloud podcast. This is Baca. We're here together again. I'm so happy about it. I couldn't be more happy. It's been so real. After doing the podcast that we did on pour over coffee, I was really excited about that. Got some good feedback. I loved talking about the historical significance behind some of the movements that were happening in coffee. And I was like, hey, we should do it again. Let's do it again with something really, really cool. And what's the coolest thing in coffee for me? It's definitely espresso machines. Now, while some of us might imagine a world that's completely devoid of espresso machines and all these humans are just enjoying single origin coffee and really appreciating it for what it is and all of our businesses can flourish, that's just not true. Without espresso machines and the things that they provide, without those cappuccinos, without those lattes, without all that fancy schmancy stuff, People are just drinking regular coffee. Coffee shop, coffee shop life would be hard. So this episode is dedicated to those beautiful machines that sit on the counter or maybe underneath the counter. We're going to dive into a little bit of history. We're going to talk about what espresso is and what espresso maybe isn't. And here's the deal. I'm going to mispronounce a ton of things. I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes, especially with the Italian names. I'm super, super sorry. I apologize in advance. If you want to check out where I got the information, some of it is from being around the industry and, you know, just, just my own brain picking other people's brains, but I'm going to do a little, what do you call it? Like a reference source, bibliography. I don't know. I've been out of school for, for a really long time. Check the show notes. If you want to find out where some of this stuff came from, there's a lot of really good articles out there. Some of the stuff's from the equipment manufacturers themselves. There's a little bit from Wiki, of course. How can you live without Wikipedia? But the Smithsonian also did a really awesome article on the history of espresso. So I'm just grasping, reaching, pulling everything together, and we're going to weave a little bit of a story. And with that, let's get started with all about espresso machines. So if you take your fancy self over to the interwebs and Google first espresso machine, this is most likely what you're going to find. You're going to find a name, Angelo Moriando. Did I pronounce that right? I don't know. He's a dude in Italy, in Turin, and the year is 1884. He's granted a patent for a coffee machine that used steam pressure to brew coffee. Now, there's a couple problems with this being referenced as the first espresso machine. Indeed, it is a machine that made coffee 
with steam pressure for sure. And we know that pressure is one of the elements in generating espresso, but it wasn't really an individual single serve machine. It was kind of more of a batch brewer and it was never really produced in any large scale. For all intents and purposes, this thing was a flop. There weren't that many of them. It never really caught on. It was not, as they say, lit. But in 1901, things were starting to get slightly more lit over in Milan with this cat, Luigi Bezzera. In 1901, Luigi made some improvements to this style of machine. Now, Luigi, he was a mechanic and he, he gave us a few things that we're, that we're really excited about now. One of those things is the portafilter. Angelo's machine didn't have a portafilter. Again, not really an espresso machine. It's a batch brewer. Luigi's machine, portafilter. Also, he made the first machine that had multiple group heads or multiple brew heads so you could brew multiple coffees at once. It was really the first single serve espresso machine. So it wasn't a batch brewer like its predecessor, but it still used steam pressure to brew the coffee. Now, just a couple years later in 1903, a gentleman comes along, Desiderio Pavoni. Again, pronunciation, you can't hold me accountable. You just can't. I don't know what I'm doing here with these Italian names. Pavoni bought Bezzera's patents. And even though he bought him out, the two worked together in tandem for a while. And for all intents and purposes, Pavoni was a much better businessman and a much better salesman than Bezzera. And through Pavoni, we got a couple other advancements that we now see as standard on espresso machines. So for example, he developed the first ever pressure relief valve. This is great because you could brew an espresso or brew a coffee, take the portafilter out and not have it burp or spit out all over you because that pressure was gone. It went somewhere else. Magic, science, what the heck? The coolest thing I think that he did was he invented the first steam wand, the first wand that would collect excess steam built up inside the machine and then you could heat up milk with it. Game changer, bro, what are you doing? How did you think of that? you're my hero. Now in this era is where we first see the term cafe espresso emerge. And it's through that idea of this is coffee made especially for you. It's made expressly on the spot. This is just your coffee really quickly, ready to roll. You can get ripped, go back to work. You don't need to take a half hour coffee break. You can be a part of the industrial revolution. You can make things happen. Now, though Pavoni and Bezzera were working together, Bezzera slowly started fading from view and just, he just wasn't around anymore. He wasn't there. Pavoni got all the shine. I mean, he's the businessman dude. He's a mover in the shaker. He's around town. He's partying with the homies and people knew who he was. He's got this sexy new machine that makes cafe espresso. Now, even though their machines improved upon that original steam pressure machine, there are still a few problems with their machine. And I'm arguing this machine also not an espresso machine, even though it's got a portafilter, even though now we have a steam wand, it's just not meeting the criteria. For one, it's got really, really limited pressure. The most brewing pressure that these things can produce was right around two bars. And for those of you who aren't math wizard, weird, strange, whatever you want to call it, one bar is about 14 and a half pounds per square inches of pressure. Now, modern espresso machines run around nine bars, give or take. That's the industry standard now. So two bars, nah, it's kind of lackluster. And one thing that we weren't getting that we do get now is 
crema. There's no crema. There's not, there's not enough funk going through here to pull out that magical, that magical bubble structure. The other thing that was a big problem with these machines is that they're still relying on steam pressure to push water through the coffee. And as everybody knows or should know, brewing coffee with water that's that hot, with water that's boiling, that's steaming, it is way too hot. You're burning the coffee. It's not a good place to be. So we've got temperatures that are way out of whack, pressure that's way low. We've got things that are resembling espresso machines, but not really an espresso machine. So with all this talk about these wannabe espresso machines, almost espresso machines, this might be a good time to talk about what is espresso? What qualifies this coffee beverage to be an espresso? And there's a few different definitions floating around. So what I'll hit you with first is the standard SCA definition that's been kind of living for a while. And it goes a little something like this. Espresso is a 25 to 35 milliliter beverage prepared from seven to nine grams, 14 to 18 grams for a double, of coffee through which clean water of 195 to 205 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 90 and a half or 96.1 degrees Celsius, has been forced at nine to 10 atmospheres of pressure and where the grind of the coffee is such that the brew time is 20 to 30 seconds. While brewing, the flow of espresso will appear to have the viscosity of warm honey, and the resulting beverage will exhibit a thick, dark, golden crema. Espresso, espresso, espresso should be prepared specifically for and immediately served to its intended customer. So that's the long-standing SCA definition, which is really confusing because it kind of weaves in and out of this single and double espresso qualifiers, you know, and you've got temperatures in Fahrenheit. It's like in Celsius. Let's just, let's just standardize that. Is Celsius still a thing? Centigrade? What do you call it? I don't know. The SCA did some research and they have a new, maybe not definition for espresso, but new research on what an average espresso would be. And that reads like like this. Our research suggests that an average barista uses a one to two brew ratio when extracting espresso and uses weight for output measurement. The average shot of espresso starts with an 18 to 20 gram dose, has an output of about 36 and a half grams, is extracted in 25 to 30 seconds at nine bars of pressure and 200 degrees Fahrenheit using pre-infusion through an 18 gram basket. Whew. All right. That's a, that's a mouthful there, SCA. We're really going for it. Now, that is a little bit more useful than the first definition because it's, it's easier to understand. It kind of takes into account what average is going on. And here's the deal. None of that really matters. There's a couple things that are really, really making this thing espresso. Okay. Let's throw out the inputs and outputs. The dose, it doesn't really matter. The output, it doesn't really matter. The time frame is not making too much of a difference because we're all in kind of the same ballpark. The single most defining attribute is the addition of proper pressure pressure somewhere in that nine bar of pressure neighborhood. That's what's creating this beautiful, heavy, just, I'm, I can't even put it into words. This amazing mouthfeel. That's the thing that's pulling out these flavors that we oftentimes can't get anywhere else. It's making these subtle flavors really loud. It's making the coffee come alive. Can you tell that I love 
espresso. I love brewing under pressure. It's the main, it's, it's what gets me up in the morning, man. So yeah, pressure. And up until this point, we don't have a ton of pressure. We've got about two bars of pressure, but that's about to change. Now in 1947, we get one of the biggest jumps, one of the hugest advancements in espresso preparation up to this time, maybe ever with the Gaja spring piston lever. In Milan, Achille Gaja had been working with this other guy. His name's Antonio. His last name is Cremonese. Cremonese. Crema? Crema? I don't know. They were developing something that used not steam pressure to brew coffee, but just hot water pressure. And there's not a lot known about this machine, which predates the spring piston lever. Couldn't find a lot of information, but supposedly this is the first time that we see that beautiful brown cremolaire on espresso. The second patent that they applied for together was the evolution of that, and that was the spring piston lever machine. Now, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding around lever machines and how they work. And this is because there are two different types of lever machines. So the Gaja spring piston lever works like this. When you take that big handle on the top of the machine and you grab it and you pull it down, what you're doing is you're compressing pressing a spring that's inside there. You're drawing this piston up, and when that piston's being drawn up, it draws water from the boiler into the brew chamber. The brew chamber's right on top of the puck of the coffee. So when you got that handle fully all the way down, what you've got is a wall of water on top of your puck of coffee with a piston at the top and a compressed spring above that. When you let that handle go, you release the spring, and then spring pressure pushes that piston down, pushing that wall of water water through your puck of coffee and voila, you've got espresso. So this is a commercial type lever machine. A lot of the lever machines that you see for home use are manual piston lever machines. They don't have a spring in it and you're actually pushing the water through as you're pulling the lever down. So you're using your muscles to push the water through the coffee. So 1947 Gaja spring piston lever. This is where in my mind we have the first proper espresso machine. We're brewing with nine bars. We're getting into that 25 to 30 second extraction. We've got crema on the coffee. We're in the freaking zone. Lever machines are rad and they're rad for a lot of different reasons. Here's the lever machine sidebar. One, you've got volumetric dosing built in. Depending on how big that chamber is, whatever volume of water that you can fit in that brew chamber when the spring and the piston are fully compressed, that's how much water is going to be in your shot. Uh, well, obviously, you know, less absorption, but you get what I'm saying. You get what I'm saying. So you've got volumetric dosing built in. Now, what this does mean is that if you want to pull a shot shorter than that volume of water that it holds, you have to physically whoop, move the cup out of the way of the stream. But if you've got your recipe dialed in to use the entirety of that chamber, boom, you've just got volumetric dosing in a really analog, awesome, repeatable kind of way. The second thing that you get with a lever machine like this is you've got pre-infusion that you can play with. So when you pull that lever down, when you compress that spring and draw that piston up, now you've got water sitting on top of that puck of coffee, but it's not under any real pressure yet. It's not, it's not being forced through by that spring. It's just atmospheric pressure just sitting on there. So you can manipulate how long you want that to happen. Pull the lever down, hold it for three seconds, and you're going to get a very different shot than if you pull the lever down, hold it for five seconds, pull the lever down, hold it for eight seconds. So you can manually manipulate how much pre-infusion you're using, which is 
pretty rad, which requires you to be aware if you're operating a lever machine that the time that you're holding that lever down at the bottom it matters. It's going to affect the shot. Now, none of the systems for delivering water temperature anywhere near accurate yet. So even if you did have an old school lever machine, did the exact same thing every time, you still have no guarantee of temperature stability, but you're doing your best to manually manipulate everything and control what you have. And what you have is pretty good. You've got a real proper espresso. It's got the weight. It's got the body of espresso. It's got that smack you in the face kind of of thing. Remember, there's probably Robusta going on in here. And it's got crema. This is the beginning of a new generation of beverage. It's just, it's next level shit, people. Okay, the next two advancements in espresso are going to take us worlds away from this awesome spring piston lever machine. But before we get into that, we need to do some quick terminology. We need to define a couple things real quick because it's going to get really confusing really quickly if we don't. We need to define heat exchanger and dual boiler types of machines. All right, let's get into heat exchanger first. So heat exchanger machines have one boiler in them, and that boiler has to be hot enough to create steam that we can use to steam cappuccinos, steam lattes, power the steam on. You gotta have that pressure. The boiling point of water actually increases when it's under pressure. So what you end up with is water that's really, 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 really hot. And as we know from before, this is way too hot of water to be brewing coffee with. You can't make, well, you can, but you don't want to make espresso with water that's that hot. So what a heat exchanger does is it takes water in this little tube. So imagine that big boiler and imagine this copper pipe running through the boiler and it kind of coils around and coils around and coils around in that boiler. And then it leaves the boiler and goes into the group head. What's happening here is water's being drawn into that pipe and it's being heated up by the water that's all around it. Remember, it's sitting in this boiling mass of water. You following me here? What this does, it creates water that's isolated from all the boiling water, but you can see how, how there's a problem. So what happens in heat exchanger machines often is if the water that's been sitting in that line a really long time, if it's just been chilling, if you hadn't made espresso in like five minutes, that water is gonna be ragingly hot. It's almost gonna be as hot as that insanely hot boiling water that's all around it. So if you make that shot, you're gonna be, you're gonna be cranking that thing up. That's basically boiling water. If you're making shot after shot after shot after shot after shot, the water's not sitting in the line as long, so it's never getting as as hot as it would have been if it was sitting for a long time. So you have water that's a little bit cooler. Now, all this is bad because what we're saying is that depending on how much you use your espresso machine at what frequency, you're going to get all different kinds of brew water temperature. And that's not good for business because that's not good for quality because it's completely unpredictable and unrepeatable. So people who worked on heat exchanger type machines in the past did this thing called temperature surfing. They would have a different purging ritual depending on how how much their machine was in use. So if the machine had been sitting for longer than 10 minutes, they knew they'd have to purge really, really long before they made that first shot. Or if they were in the middle of a rush, they would maybe only purge for like a split second, all in an effort to stabilize the temperature of this machine. So it's a lot of purging. It's a lot of, it's a really hands-on experience. This is heat exchanger technology. It's just how it works. And if you've ever worked on a heat exchange machine, you might've recognized this. One of the first machines I ever worked on was a heat exchanger machine. I had no idea what that meant, but 
but I knew that if I was purging and I turned the pump on, basically boiling water would come out. It would make that really rumbly sound. It would be like spitting all over the place. And after a few seconds, that water would settle down and it wasn't making that boiling rumble anymore. And that's just because I was emptying that heat exchanger of all the water that had been super, super hot sitting in there and pulling in new fresh water that just wasn't as hot. Wow. What a mouthful. Wow. You, everybody with me? It's pretty, it's not, we'll draw a diagram. We'll put it up somewhere. I'll, I'll link a diagram in the show notes. Okay. You down with that? Now on the other end of the spectrum, you've got dual boiler machines. Now dual boiler machines are much more simple to understand. They're exactly what they sound like they are. It's an espresso machine with two different boilers. One boiler is a steam boiler. It's got boiling hot, crazy water in it. That's used to power the steam wands. And that's all it does. The other boiler is a brew water boiler. Now this is great because you can set those two boilers for completely different temperatures. There's no heat exchanger involved. It's it's really, really easy. It's really simple. Cool. You want water over 212 to steam lattes with? Perfect. You want your water at 202 and a half to brew coffee with? Dual boiler, we'll give that to you. So that's a quick rundown on heat exchanger versus dual boiler. Now let's get into the next crazy advancements in espresso machine technology. Ding. Okay, so now we're back in time again. Now we're in 1961. We're in Milan still. Milan is the place to be. Now, this is going to be the time and birthplace of one of the most famous things ever in espresso history, the E61 group head. Ernesto Valente of Fema developed this group head. And the thing that made this really, really special is he developed the first pump-driven espresso machine. So first, we're brewing coffee with steam pressure. Then we're moving into that piston and spring thing. But not until now, not until 1961, do we have a pump-driven espresso machine that can produce nine bars of pressure. And oh, sidebar, this machine was sexy as fuck. This machine is the quintessential classic espresso machine. You can still get them today. And when I say they're sexy, I really think they're sexy. They're so sexy that I entertain the idea of maybe I could build a dual boiler type machine inside of an E61 casing to have that like front facing E61 vintage vibe. They just look so good as a lot of stuff from the 60s does. Now, this is a heat exchanger machine. So you've got that single boiler with a heat exchanger running through it. And this machine was the top of the game. This was like the king of espresso machines for many, many years, holding down the market until something ridiculous happened in 1970. Now, in 1970, this company, La Marzocco, cranked it up and developed something that would forever change espresso machines. And I realize I've said that a few times, but all of these steps are really huge in the evolution of what would be the modern espresso machine. Going from that first steam-powered espresso machine to that spring piston lever, that's a game changer. That's huge. Going from that spring piston lever to using a pump to deliver pressure, that's huge. And then what La Marzocco in 1970 did, they made the first dual boiler espresso machine. Machine. They made the first espresso machine that had two independent boilers, one for steam and one for brewing espresso. This was bananas. No one had done it before. No one had even thought about it. What? Where did you come from? What's happening? The group that they built was called the GS Group, which was the Grupo Saturo or saturated group. What this had with the brew boiler is it had the group head welded directly to the coffee 
boiler. And what this meant was that temperature stability was going to be even better. It was already better because you've got the two independent groups that you could tune. But by mating that brew boiler directly to the group head and having water flow between them, you've got a lot more temperature stability than you know, than anything else that's been around. So if you see GS on like the GS3 or if you're looking at the old vintage GS2 type machines, that's what the GS stands for. It's a saturated group. Gruppo Saturo. Am I saying that right in Italian? I don't know. All I know is that in 1970, La Marzocco invented the dual boiler espresso machine. Thank you very much. So now with this dual boiler technology, we're in the modern age of espresso machine. This multiple boiler setup would be the foundation for everything that would come after it. There's a really interesting story about how La Marzocco became to be what it is today. And I'm really tempted to tell that story. And it's got something to do with this place called Starbucks and some really cool people like Kent Bakke that I know, but we'll probably save that for another time because it deserves its own little podcast in and of itself. But what I do want to talk about is a man named David Schomer, who is basically the godfather of temperature stability. So a lot of the espresso machine technology up until this point, it all revolves around getting that brew water temperature where we want it so we can make espresso that tastes delicious and we can do it over and over again. And we're inching towards that temperature stability, first by getting away from steam, then by using a heat exchanger, then by doing multiple boilers so we can really control the brew water temperature. But there's always that one motherfucker who just wants more, the person who can't leave well enough alone, the person who wants to push it to the max. And with espresso machines, that person is David Schomer. David Schomer owns Espresso Vivace. They're a legendary espresso bar started in Seattle. And he was on this legendary journey to kind of make espresso taste as good as fresh ground coffee smelled. And, you know, I kind of like that. And he made a bunch of modifications to his La Marzocco machines that would kind of pave the way for the new era of temperature stability. So let's go through some of them. Some of them are a little techy, so I'm going to do my best to explain these. But if you don't have any idea how espresso machines work at all, it'll probably help if you look at a picture or something or just go get lost on the internet for three hours with espresso machines. Let's start, let's start simple first. So one of the things that he did before anybody else did was he used a static water tank plumbed in line before his espresso machine. So think about that like this. Let's think about a dual boiler machine. Let's think about the brew water boiler. That's got water in it of a certain degree. Let's say it's 205 degrees inside the boiler. Every time you make espresso, water leaves the boiler. Now the boiler has to fill itself up. So what does the boiler do? It fills itself up with water and that water is basically at room temperature or whatever temperature, you know, the pipes that your water is in. So you get what I'm saying. It's, it's topping off with room temperature water. Now this is a problem because every time new fresh water enters the boiler that pulls down the temperature of all the water in the boiler. Hmm. So he's like, what am I going to do? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a water tank that I plumb in before the boiler and I'm going to heat that thing up. So instead of topping off my boiler with room temperature water, I have room temperature water that goes into a static water tank that gets pretty damn close to 200 degrees. And then when my boiler empties, it's going to fill up off that static tank. So I don't have a ton of water temperature fluctuation. It's brilliant. You want to get more techie? That's fine. Let's talk about banjo tube and banjo tube modifications. Bear with me here. You've got 
the brew group, and then you've got the group head. And remember, we have that saturated group that the La Marzocco has. So that whole group is filled with water to promote temperature stability. But there's this little thing that's getting in the way, and that's the three-way solenoid valve. That's the valve that allows you to back flush the machine and shoot stuff back out. It's, it's, it's an annoying little valve. Three-way solenoid valve. I hate you. So what happens is water comes from the boiler, starts up that saturated group, but then it takes a loop outside of the group to go through the three-way valve, and then it goes back into the group head and then keeps traveling up to where it's dispensed on top of the coffee. Once it goes back in, it goes back into this thing called the banjo tube, and the banjo tube is basically heated up by that saturated group. So what Schomer started doing was taking that banjo tube and basically extending it. And by extending the banjo tube, you get the water longer time to equalize back up to its ideal brewing temperature once it re-enters the group head. What the heck? Dude, I know it's weird. Look it up. Schomer banjo tube mods. This was working for a while, but then everyone cranked it to the next level. And now what's standard on all the Lamarzoko machines is that three-way valve, that solenoid is actually embedded in the group head itself so that the water never actually has to leave the saturated group. So you can thank Schomer for all of that. Perhaps the most notable thing that Schomer worked on, along with a couple other people of the time, is integrating PID technology into espresso machines to help control temperature stability. What the heck does that even mean? Well, PID stands for proportional, integral, derivative, and it's basically this kind of series of equations that'll tell you how to turn your state. Well, let's back it up. This is not going to make sense. Rewind. Back in the day, espresso machines ran on thermostats or pressure stats. So you would set your thermostat somewhere, the thermostat would kick on, the heating element would turn on, it would get to a certain point, and then the thermostat would shut off, much like a thermostat in your house. Now, this works in a basic sense, but the thing about it is that you get a really large swing of things. So let's say you want 200 degrees flat. That's what you want in your brew water boiler. You're going to get this big range because maybe the temperature dips to 195 before that thermostat recognizes it and turns it on. And on the top end, maybe it shoots up to 205 before the thermostat recognizes it and wants to turn it off. So you've got this wave of hot and cold and hot and cold and hot and cold. And it's just not as dialed in as it could be. So what a PID allows you to do is it senses what's going on and it controls the duration and the intensity that the heating element turns on. So you're hitting it in all these little blips instead of big clicks on and big clicks off. It's like do 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 da 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 I'm adding temperature. Blah, 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 blah. I'm on. I'm off. I'm on at a low intensity. I'm on at a high intensity. Oh, 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 oh. In the olden days, olden days, do people even say that anymore? Back in the day, you could tell if a machine had a PID on it. Let's say you take a Lamarzoco Linea. It's got that little red light on the front of the machine. Now that light kicks on when the heating element turns on. So in a stock Linea, you'd see the light, it would be off for minutes at a time, and then the light would click on and it would stay on for a decent amount of time. Machines that were modified with a PID, that light was kind of always blinking and always fluttering. That heating element was working overtime, y'all. It was doing that precision temperature control. Schomer didn't work on this alone. 
Andy Schechter and Greg Scase were working on this at the same time. Schechter, I think, is the one who is credited with actually discovering it. And he was using PID technology to stabilize temperature of the tofu that he was making. And Greg Scase, you might have heard of his name via the Scase device, the device that measures temperature and pressure of espresso machines really accurately. But David Schomer was the first one to take this technology and bring it to the mass market, use it in big commercial settings. I am a huge fan of David Schomer. He's definitely one of my coffee heroes. And a lot of people now don't know the contributions that he made, just the curiosity of one person in this pursuit of excellence that gives us all of this technology that we use and oftentimes take for granted now. So big shout out to the Schomer. Schomer, what's up, dog? I love you. I love your apron. I love your bolo tie. I love the whole thing. You basically taught me how to make coffee. Freaking love it, dude. All right. So what have we learned so far? We've learned that the first two espresso machines to be ever invented weren't really espresso machines at all. And we didn't get truly modern style espresso coffee under heavy pressure with crema until around 1947 with the Gaja spring piston lever machine. In 1961, we've got the E61 group head and the first pump driven espresso machine. 1970, we've got the dual boiler machine with La Marzocco. We know the difference between heat exchanger and dual boiler. We're coming into the zone. We got Schomer pushing the boundaries of temperature stability. And now we're here. We're in the modern era. We're in the modern era where there's new things happening all the time. And I, it's really hard to keep track of them and how they're affecting coffee because a lot of them haven't been out for long enough yet for us to see what's going on. For example, you've got some machines that do pressure profiling. You've got machines like the Strata EP, and this machine has individual brew groups and also individual gear pumps. So instead of one pump pushing nine bars, each group head's got its own pump and you can program it to do whatever the hell you want. You could have it start at two bars, shoot up to four, drop back down to three, crank to nine, taper off really slow. What the heck? What are you going to do with that? Well, we're not actually sure yet. There's people playing with it, but I don't think we have enough information to see how things like this are going to affect the industry yet. Along with that, I need to shout out a friend of mine, John Ermakoff, AKA Jeppy Coffee, who was actually building pressure profiling machines as early as like 2006, 2007. Drew and I played with one of his early machines that was a hydraulic pressure profiling setup. So it was using hydraulics to pressure profile. That thing was wild. It had a little joystick. We were controlling things. It was, it was weird. I don't think we knew what to think of it back then, but there's definitely been this stuff going on for a while. In movements like these, I really have to credit a lot of the home baristas and home coffee enthusiasts who have the time and energy to really push the boundaries of what's going on. I, I appreciate you. And I, I appreciate you, John Ermakoff, specifically. He did a lot of other cool stuff. He was the first person to modify our grinders with digital timers for competition. Timers had come about on grinders, but everyone was using this weird dial where you couldn't actually dial in the exact time. And he hooked us up with digital timers. I was like, dude, you're the jam. So yeah, we've got pressure profiling. Is it having an effect in the industry? Maybe maybe not. It's fun for experimentation. What's the practicality? We don't know. Aside from just varying pump pressure, you've got other ways to affect extraction. Let's talk about Slayer for a second. Slayer famously uses the needle valve to regulate the flow of water through the group head. How is this different than pump pressure? Well, thank you, Prima Coffee, for making an amazing video. The video that they do is two firefighters with 
two hoses filling up these big barrels. Now the hoses are under the exact same pressure. One is a small garden hose that he's shooting into this huge bucket. And the other one is like this freaking three inch full size fire hose. Now, same amount of pressure coming out, vastly different amounts of water. So you can imagine the one with a big hose filled up the bucket first, even though they're under the same pressure. And this is the concept that Slayer uses with the needle valve. So while most companies are regulating pressure via the pump, they're controlling flow with this different valve and use multiple stages to brew coffee, the pre-infusion, the actual brewing cycle, and then you can do a taper. Now, this isn't really a pressure profiling machine, although a lot of times people think it is. It's just a different way to attack the different stages of brewing. Now, really, all of this is just the tip of the iceberg with what's going on right now. There's a ton of stuff coming out. I'm realizing at this moment in my mind, we need to do a round two on this. But I think it's important that we understand where the technology that we use came from. There's a lot of people who aren't really techie and some people just want to make coffee and they totally get that. I don't think you need to be a tech nerd to make awesome coffee, but there is one important thing that's just ringing in my head over and over and over again. With all of the advancements that we've made in espresso machine and grinder technology, still nothing's perfect. We don't have the perfect system. So while you maybe don't need to be a full-blown tech head, if you're a barista, the more you understand about the equipment that you use, the better you'll be able to compensate for that equipment's shortcomings, and every piece of equipment has its shortcomings. I hope this sheds some light under the machines to sit on top or maybe underneath of our bars. I know, I didn't talk about under-counter espresso machines. We're going to do it in round two. Let us know if you want to hear more. Let us know if there's something specific you want to know about industry-wise, technology-wise, coffee brewing-wise. Send us a little email to podcast at catandcloud.com and we'll do our best to hook you up. This is Chris Baca. Thank you for listening to the Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast. Stay dialed and I will catch you on the flip side. Peace out, y'all. The Cat and Cloud Coffee Podcast is brought to you by Wilbur Curtis. They make coffee brewers. Ever heard of them? If you haven't, you should. They're an awesome family-owned company. They're here in California. They power their facility with solar power, which I hear that's like a new hot thing that progressive people do. The best thing about Curtis, in my humble opinion, is the turnaround time on the brewers. They have a 24-hour turnaround. It's Phenomenal. If you've ever ordered a brewer for a wholesale client from someone else and waited and waited and waited for it to come in, you know how frustrating that is. So being able to get the brewer next day like that is absolutely amazing. Shout out to you, Wilbur Curtis. Their customer service is phenomenal. And they just care. They care about you. They care about me. And I care about them. And that's why Cat Cloud Podcast is brought to you by Wilbur Curtis.